Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the, in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, go down and, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, from there over the face of all the earth and they, left off, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, good morning, church. You know, we have been in a section of Scripture, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, that, and we're coming to an end of it. It's the section that's known as primeval history, which means the history of humanity and the universe from the creation of the world until the establishment of the nations from which the patriarchs come. And uh, it's interesting to see how many of you know, some of these stories in this section of Scripture actually um, are across the globe in multiple civilizations. So, so, for example, I think every continent has civilizations that are totally disconnected, yet they all have uh, a, a flood story within their culture. And if you look at the culture of the Mesopotamians, uh, they have epic stories that actually contain uh, similarities to the Tower of Babel. But it's a, a king and a different god who comes and confuses the languages of the people, and he does it for very different reasons than what the scriptures give us. But there's this common tie-in to what we read within the scriptures uh, this morning. I always enjoyed, as a little child, the story of the Tower of Babel. Because I had great Sunday school teachers, right? So I remember, you know, when I was little, little, uh, you know, we built towers with blocks. And then, of course, you know, what little boy doesn't enjoy tearing the, uh, the blocks down? But I really, really, what I really appreciated was, I think it was my second grade teacher, boys class. Uh, he had us build a pyramid of boys, right? You know, we all got on the bottom, you know, you know how you cheerleaders, you've seen them build it. And then we just crashed the pyramid, Right. And I never ever forget that. And so I really considered this morning having the deacons and elders come up and build a pyramid, but I was afraid of you know, broken hips, whatever. So no, uh, I passed on that idea. But I've always enjoyed this, this story. And, but I do want us to kind of dig into it this morning and understand it and, and why it's been included in the scriptures. And we're gonna do this by essentially answering three questions. The first of which was why Moses would end this section of primeval history with the story of the Tower of Babel. And then what does it teach us about God and humanity? And then we'll close out with answering the question of how a story that of a tower from thousands and thousands of years ago relates to uh, the gospel and we followers of Jesus Christ. So uh, let's, uh, let's think about it like this. The Tower of Babel, well, actually, let me give you this background. 
In the Tower of Babel, this story is the end, uh, it, it actually ends the fourth of 10 sections, 10 sets of generations in the book of Genesis from which you can trace from the, the slaves in Egypt all the way back to um, Adam and Eve. Uh, you look through the, the book of Genesis, you see it divided, right? First 11 chapters, primeval history. The rest of the book is what we call patriarchal history. But unifying these two sections are, are these groupings, and there's 10 of them. And you know when you're coming to one of these groupings, because in the Hebrew, there's a common word. It's the word toledot. And toledot is translated into our scriptures in this way. The, the generations of, the history of, the children of, right? And so the Tower of Babel is actually closing out the fourth Toledot of Genesis. And it started back in chapter 10. When you read, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then if you look after the story of Tower of Babel, verse 10 says, these are the sons of Shem. Fifth Toledot begins. Now, I, I tell you this because, um, not just to give you a little interesting factoid, which you would immediately forget by the time you got to the restaurant this afternoon. I'm telling you this because the story of the Tower of Babel is the conclusion of a section that begins in chapter 10. So this morning, we have to go back some and pull from chapter 10, and we'll be doing this in order for us to really see the full impact of why this story was included and, and why basically Moses ends primeval history and this Toledot, this fourth Toledot, with the story of the Tower of Babel. He does this, he includes it for, the, uh, for really, I think, three distinct reasons. First of all, he is beginning to establish for this generation of Israelites his God-given authority to be their leader. Let's remember that this audience's parents and grandparents had rebelled against the authority of Moses, and it cost them their lives. You know, they were the generation that came out of the, out of the slavery in Egypt, and they went through the Exodus. They were making their way to the Promised Land. They get to this place called Kadesh Barnea, and they send out spies, 12 spies. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you may not be, so bear with me, those of you who already know the story, for the benefit of those who don't. The 12 spies go out, 10 of them come back with a horrible report, and they tell the Israelites that the land is filled with humongous people and high-walled cities that they could never defeat. And two of them come back and say, no, we should, we should take it, man. It's right. It's ready to go. And the people, when they heard this report from, their, from these spies, they, they're like, what have you done to us, Moses? They rebel against his leadership. They, they say, you know, for us to even try to go in, it would just be a suicide mission. They refuse to do so. And so because of their rebellion and because of their lack of belief and trust in God, he banishes them uh, to the wilderness for 40 years where that generation of adults who came out of slavery will ultimately die. And so for 40 years, Moses had to endure the whining and the complaining and the griping and the rebellion of this generation of people who he had freed from slavery. What a big thank you that was, right? And so as Moses, you know, continued, you know, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. 
And what you'll begin to see even more and more, especially in the book of Exodus, Moses takes effort and time to establish that he's their leader because God called him to do it. They needed to listen to him. They needed to obey what he was telling them because it was coming from God. Otherwise, they would end up like their parents and grandparents. And so the, the foundation for this you know, effort to help them see who he was and his role in their life was, begins even all the way back here in this story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, Richard Pratt's written great work on this to show you know, how Moses very subtly does this, right? And one of the things that he does is that he compares, Moses compares himself and draws comparisons and connections between himself and Noah. And what Noah did with the flood and, and, and the ark and what Moses does with the Israelites in the Exodus. And, and there's all these connections that are very subtle that the Israelites, they, oh, okay, I, I see what he's doing here, right? So for example, you see um, both Moses and Noah delivering their people from a very violent world. You see both of these individuals, Noah and Moses, being rescued in an ark, right? You're familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. We looked at that last week. But interestingly, the only time that Moses will use the Hebrew word for ark is when he tells the story of when he was a baby, at the beginning of Exodus, when he was a baby and he's put into the basket, right? And he's sent down the river and rescued. You know, nod your head if you know that story, right? Okay. All right. The, the word for the basket in English is the same word for ark. They're both rescued, through an art. They both mediate a divine covenant. They both see God judge with water. Think about that one for a second, the Red Sea and the flood. They both see God use the wind to drive back the waters and to rescue his people. Uh, Both of these stories, actually, the Exodus and the flood, have extensive sections that deal with the preservation of animals. It's interesting how I went back and looked at the Exodus story. There's numerous passages, detailed instructions about animals and rescuing the animals. Uh, and both of these stories also have something that's very important. They, there's a time of divine remembrance. It comes at a very crucial time. Chapter 8, Noah's story. I read at 8.1 to you last week. God remembered his covenant with Noah. He's been in the ark for a year. And so God sends a wind to to drive the waters back and he frees Noah and his family from the ark. And you read in the end of Genesis and the first part of Exodus that God remembers his covenant with Abraham and he now delivers them from their slavery. So there's all of these tie-ins, and this is one of the reasons why um, Moses includes this story and this whole section of Scripture. Another reason is that he's explaining to the Israelites the origins of the world in which they live. You know, when you go back to the previous chapter, in chapter 10, you, you find Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, I, I want one of you pregnant ladies, if you have a son, to please name him Ham. I've always thought, all right. We've had a Japheth in our church before, but no Ham. Uh, well, we've had Ham, but not a child. Anyway, I'll, I'll go on. Uh, and so what you see in chapter 10 is you see a, a listing of the sons of Japheth and Ham. And here's what you read about the sons of Ham. This is important. The sons of Ham, what are their names? Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. 
And he goes on and he talks about how Cush in verse eight fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. They developed a proverb that said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of the kingdom of Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar comes from from Nimrod. From that land, Nimrod went into Assyria and built Nineveh and these other cities. Do you you catch the significance of this? In, In just a few verses, Moses has explained something very, very important to the Israelites. They've endured hundreds of years of slavery, 400 years of slavery in a nation in Egypt, a nation that derives from Noah's son, Ham, or Noah's grandson, whose name was Egypt. They are about to enter the promised land, and it's filled with a very warlike people. They are known as the Canaanites, who also are derived from Noah's son, Ham. The other great powers of their day are Babylon and Assyria. It's Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. And where do Assyria and Babylon come from? Again, they derive from another one of Ham's descendants, Nimrod. Do you see a theme here? You see something common in all of this, right? Uh, Israel, who descends from Noah's son, Shem, finds itself in conflict with the descendants of Ham for literally thousands of years. Now, now I'm not going to go into all the details as to why this is, because this morning the walls have ears, so to speak. But if you go back to chapter 9, and I would encourage you adults to read the end of chapter 9 and read between the lines of chapter at the end of that story, and you'll discover that Ham and his descendant Canaan especially are cursed three times by Noah because of what takes place at the end of chapter 9. And this sets the stage for all kinds of conflict between the seed of Ham and the seed of Shem. Does that sound familiar? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. See, there's this theme running through. And so Moses is helping to explain their world to them and the people that have oppressed them or the people that will ultimately, in the case of Assyria and Babylon, take them into captivity. So he's establishing his leadership. He's explaining his world. But the biggest reason why Moses includes this story in the end of this section is to actually encourage the Israelites to trust God and to take on the task of defeating the high towers of Canaan. You know, I mentioned to you the story of Kadesh Barnea. Um, Here's what happened in Deuteronomy chapter one. Here was the response of the people to those spies. Where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to, what's the next word? Heaven. Ah, ah, okay. So three times, Noah tells and curses Ham and the descendants Canaan, saying that the sons of Shem will conquer them and, and, and actually enslave them and master them. But when the Israelites, when it came time to do it, this first generation, they failed to do it. They were too afraid. And, and they run. And so they, they lose their lives. 40 years later, Moses is turning to this next generation. And you can almost hear him saying, so 
The Canaanite cities have walls up to the heavens, do they? (laughs) Well, let me tell you about this story of this other tower that went up to the heavens and what God did about that. We don't have anything to worry about high-walled cities, Israel. God delights in destroying towers that go up to the heavens. So he's encouraging this people. Listen, I know that was maybe a, a little bit more information that you want, wanted, but it's good for us for, to occasionally just pause. And it's actually always good for us to understand what was the original reason why the author of God's word, and in this case, Moses, includes things. What was the purpose as it relates to the original audience? If we don't do that, what we're going to end up doing is deriving false conclusions from God's word because we will read ourselves into that story and shape it according to our culture rather than the original purpose. So we need, sometimes church, we need to pause and we need to understand that kind of context. But let's move on to the second question. What does the Tower of Babel teach us about God and humanity? You know, this story begins by telling us that All of humanity spoke one language, which is significant as it allowed for perfect communication, cooperation with one another under various projects. They they migrated eastward from the the area of Eden and Ararat, the mountains of Ararat, and they go eastward to the plain of Shinar, which in our language would be ancient Sumer, Sumerian cultures, Mesopotamia, Babylon, modern-day Iraq is where they migrate to. Um, Ultimately, as chapter 10 tells us, uh, this whole area will end up belonging to the descendants of Shem. But for right now, you see a primary character, Nimrod, son of Ham. He's the main protagonist. And these people, they learn how to, to make bricks and to weatherproof these bricks so that they can build homes and buildings. So they devise a scheme They're going to create a city, and they're all going to stay together. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem like a big deal, right? I mean, after all, there's strength in, finish it, numbers, right? There's strength in numbers. And so at first, it doesn't seem like a big deal. However, there's more at play here, and there's something that's very insidious. To this point in human history, sin had manifested itself very much at the personal level, right? It was one brother killing another brother. It was violence at the personal level. It was immorality at the personal level. But with Babel, it's different. It's not moral sin that's primarily at work here. It's theological and it's institutional. So there's a man by the name of of John Walton. He is an expert on biblical times, Mesopotamian cultures. His work on the book of Genesis is absolutely wonderful. He makes this statement about Babel. He says, sin makes us inclined toward paganism. Babel institutionalized it. Sin makes us inclined towards paganism. Babel institutionalized it. God's creation command, which he reiterated with Noah after they exited the ark, was that humanity was to fill the earth with his image through human reproduction, right? This is the creation account reiterated with Noah. This was to be done for God's glory. It was to demonstrate that all the earth belonged to him, that he's sovereign over it all, that he owns all of it. And, And inevitably, if humanity would do that, cities would arise, civilizations would arise, communities would arise, 
But the reason behind the creation of those cities and those civilizations and cultures would have been different. It would have been for the glory of God. But in verse 4, what we see is we see this creation command being twisted. And rather than building civilization and cities for God's glory, in verse 4, we see men glorifying themselves and turning to paganism. Then they said, come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The tower that is being referred to here is what is, we know as a ziggurat, right? A ziggurat. This is the, these is the remains, the actual remains of the ziggurat in the city of Ur. Modern-day Iraq, we're going to get to know Ur real well after the Christmas break when we start talking about Abraham. That was his home. And there was a ziggurat here. Um, through, the, through the descriptions in the, the ancient culture, artists have really been able to replicate what an ancient ziggurat looked like. And that's a, that's a great rendition, a massive complex, a massive tower. Now, we can immediately understand the purpose And the meaning behind this tower, when we realize that the Mesopotamian word for tower or or ziggurat literally means gateway to the gods. Gateway to the gods. The ziggurat was not a temple. Now, we've all probably seen, you know, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger movies or something, you know, or Barbarian, and they come down the stairs, and they've done the sacrifice at the top, and, you know, the hero's running up the steps like Rocky or whatever. You know, we've all seen movies like that, but those movies are wrong, okay? Uh, You see that little building on top of the ziggurat? That is not a temple where they worshiped God. The the temple complex in the city was built around the ziggurat. The ziggurat, that that building on top, that's not where they did sacrifices. Uh, That was an elaborate bedroom with all kinds of creature comforts where they essentially thought, well, our God, our gods, whatever that form may be, as he he or she walks and travels from the, the heavens down to earth, and then maybe to the underworld, or from underworld back up to heaven. You know, they get tired, and they need a place to sleep and rest. And so that building on top of the ziggurat was a bedroom for the gods. As he was traveling up and down the stairs, right, back and forth between the heavens and the underworld, and he would stop off at the temple exit, rest for a while, get worshiped a little bit, recharge his batteries, and then continue on with his journey. That's what this is all about. Okay, And all the worship around it was designed to please this God so that they could get the blessings from him or her and not have curses. So Paul tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 26, he summarizes something that is said in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament about God and the nations. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The people of Babel were seeking to thwart God's cosmic plan. They intended to stay together in one place, developing their own city, their own religion, creating their own God that they would do in their image, which they would then worship and serve. This is the birth of what we know as paganism. 
Paganism, church, is not the same thing as atheism. We often think that a pagan is somebody who simply lives however they want to live with no regard for God at all because they don't believe in God, but nothing can be further from the truth. Pagans, a pagan does care what God thinks. A pagan is constantly living his life with God in mind seeking how to please that God, serve that God, worship that God in order to get from that God what he or she wants. Pagans will worship and pray and live according to a very strict moral and ethical code, all for one reason and end, to obligate their God to give them what they want to do what they want them to do. That's what pagans is. Pagans worship and live essentially in a certain way in order to manipulate their deity to fulfill their own desires. That's what's at the core of paganism. So the Tower of Babel allowed these people to worship a God that they created in their image or gods that they created in their image You see the same thing happen in Greek and Roman society. You notice how all the gods are very much human, a lot of times bad humans, right? And uh, and they're all envisioned in this way. This is paganism. It It envisions God in the image of the human creator and then the relationship between the two is simply transactional. I'm getting from that God what I want, security, prosperity, whatever it may be. Now, we know how this story ends, and there's a lot of irony in Genesis chapter 11. In fact, Moses actually gets sarcastic at points. The Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, behold, they're all one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Verse 5 is is kind of funny in the Hebrew, and in in Israelite thinking, right? This massive high tower to the heavens, why it is so huge, verse 5 says, that You know, God had to essentially get off the throne of heaven and come all the way down to earth just so he could see it, okay? That's what what Moses is telling the Israelites, right? I mean, this massive tower that they're so proud of is an infinitesimal speck in the eyes of the Creator, And then with a lot of irony and sarcasm, he says, the people who didn't want to be scattered, they're scattered. And how does he do it? And and he chooses two words. And in the Hebrew, they sound very much alike. The word for the city of Babel and the word for scattered are, are virtually the same. They sound the same. And so he scatters them simply, effortlessly, by no longer letting them have one language. He introduces multiple languages, and the city is abandoned, the project's done. There you go. He thwarts it all. God thwarts their plans. And in so doing, he reminds everybody, reminds them who's actually sovereign over every aspect of creation. You know, I took a, a good amount at the beginning of the message to, to explain what this, why, why Moses included this in 
the original uh, story for the Israelites. Let, let's finish out by thinking about why us. How does this story relate to the gospel? Why is it in the overall you know, corpus of the scriptures? How does it relate to, to followers of Jesus Christ? I would suggest for two reasons, two applications this morning. First, Babel challenges us to admit our own predisposition to paganism. Uh, there's a reason why God had the first three of the Ten Commandments addressing paganism. We all are predisposed to create God in our image so that His worship is more comfortable, more sensible, more beneficial to us. We're all predisposed this way. You know, this story comes at the end of, of, you know, Noah and the sons of Noah. Think about Noah for a moment. He was a, a righteous man of faith. What made him a righteous man of faith? He listened to God, he believed God, and then he obeyed God. Righteousness and faith and obedience to what God says are inextricably linked together, right? Yet I have to, you know, confess that many times where I listen to God and the commands of God that I listen, that I obey, are the ones that I find very convenient, uh, maybe naturally easy for me to obey because this is my disposition, this is who I am. And, and when it comes to the commands, when it comes to the teachings of God's word that maybe are more challenging, I, I am very adept at finding ways to disobey. And then to justify that disobedience, sometimes by you know, presuming upon the grace of God. I mean, God is gracious. He understands, right? And cheapen God's grace. Paganism is, is just a, an effort. It's a paganism is what's behind the effort that I find in my own life where I will, I will make God into my own image. I'll rethink his grace and shape it into a form of cheap grace when in reality, God's grace isn't cheap at all. It cost him his life so that he could be gracious to us. Church, the, the, the reality of, the, of our lives is that every one of us, we are born God abusers. This is our natural inclination. We naturally seek to diminish his sovereignty over us and over our world. We quickly turn to other gods that we can control in order to get what we want. We build our lives one brick at a time, constructing little ziggurats, for ourselves that we will worship. It might be a career, it might be our family, it might be a hobby, it can be any number of things. But we turn to these things and we, we look to them to give us what we want and we worship them. We'll take our career, something that can be a, a real blessing for God, and we'll make a ziggurat out of it in a heartbeat. We'll pour ourselves into our careers, won't we? Because we can control that. We can control how hard we work and the quality of our work, and we can do it in a way that will earn us maybe more money and um, more prestige and promotions. And we do all of that so that we can get what we want. And so a career, which can be an incredibly effective way to worship God, becomes a little ziggurat that we worship in order to get what we want. We'll do this with our children. We'll do this with our family. We'll do it with a host of things. It's paganism. It's paganism when we carve out 
a part of our story. And we carve out a little part of that and we say, right there is where God belongs, right? This is the, hey, let me, t- let me tell you about, you know, God's part in my story, right? You know, that testimony of this morning, thankfully, Paxton sent it to me last night. And uh, I had finished my sermon, and it was probably 9 o'clock, and I was mad at the gators. And um, so I took a break, and I watched the video, and I was glad I did because it, it, it hit me. I, I will never forget that day, Lori and Mark. I mean, uh, I was out fishing. I had just gotten out there. I would just done a cast net trying to get bait late in the afternoon, and it got t- tangled on the bottom. And I was fighting trying to get this thing, and I got the call. We just left the—it's still there, I guess, in the river, and— and we rushed back, and I cried the whole way back to the ramp as I thought about Chris. He's such a, a wonderful man, and the pain that Lori and Mark and Justin and Shannon were then experiencing. Thank you for that transparency, that authenticity, Lori. I know how hard that, that was. And what I really appreciated as I was watching it last night, the sermon was done. This part about our story was already in my notes. And, and I hear her say at the end, come to realize it's not my story of being faithful to God, it's God's story of faithfulness to me. See, that's, that's deep wisdom, church. That's the gospel. That's, that's, that's why we all need gospel restoration, every one of us, because our tendency is always going to be to find a little place in our story for God to comfortably, conveniently fit. And so the gospel has to invade us and recalibrate our hearts and thinkings to help us to realize that God chose us before the foundations of the world and he is giving us a place in his story to work out his glory and his will in our lives. Sometimes that will is gonna be painful. And then there's gonna be heights of pain and heights of rejoicing, but his goodness and his faithfulness says it will always be done. Your part and my story will always be done for your good and for my glory. And I'm going to accomplish my sovereign ends through you as you take your part in my story. Paganism encourages us to just carve out a little piece of our life and assign God that part of our story. We get so twisted. The gospel is what we need because it reshapes our hearts, it reshapes our perspective, it helps us to see all the little ziggurats that we build to our own glory to get what we want. John Walton, that man I mentioned a few moments ago, he writes, we all have at least a seed of paganism within us that is reflected when we view God as limited when we try to get him to respond to us on our terms, when we view him as needing us or our abilities, or when we try to make him do what we want him to when we want it to be done. Babel, it challenges us to admit our predisposition to paganism. It calls on us, the gospel calls on us, and it uses stories like the Tower of Babel to to look at our lives and to examine whether or not the motivations of our hearts 
are being fueled by the gospel or simply are the fruits of a paganistic desire to get God to do what we want God to do. It calls on us to say, why do I even come to church this morning? Why do I give in the offering plate? Why do I serve? Why do I not have sex before marriage? Why am I faithful to my spouse? Why do I not watch this or do? Why? Why? Is it to get from God? Or is it because God has already gotten us? And he's redeemed us and he's restoring us. And he's loved us and he's poured out his grace. Why? The Tower of Babel brings paganism right to our face and says, how much of my life, Jerry Clem, is rooted in paganism? And how much of it is rooted in the truth of the gospel? Listen, one final thing. We don't have time this morning to really go into it too much. Final application from this story. Since God is sovereign, no scheme of man or devil will thwart God's redemptive plan. The Tower of Babel was the people seeking to thwart God's plan for creation. It's interesting how, you know, here at Advent, we celebrate the story of Advent thousands of years after Babel. There's this baby born, and we know the story. And what's interesting, and one aspect of that story is that, you know, by, by at least according to, you know, the way it's told, three kings, three wise men come. And where do they come from? They come from the area of the Tower of Babel. And they come all the way over in order to find the true one king of the earth. And they get here and they meet Herod. And what does Herod seek to do? He seeks to thwart the plan of God. And he ends up killing all the boy children of the region under the age of two because he's trying and attempting to thwart God's plan. The conflict, right, between the seed of the woman, the seed of serpent, between the, the seed of Ham and the seed of Shem. Shem is the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus, right? It continued from the Tower of Babel all the way through to Jesus, and it continues today. And behind it all is this spiritual entity who is evil, seeking to thwart God's plan. He creates his schemes to create God's plan or to thwart it. And he does it through conflict. I mean, think about what we've learned so far, right? He encourages one brother to kill the other. God thwarts it by giving Eve another son, Seth. He seeks to poison the, line, the family lines of humanity through demonic influence, and God thwarts it by bringing a flood that wipes out all those family lines. We see what happens in Babel where they seek to establish their own God, their own religion, their own civilization, and God thwarts it by changing their language. We see him seeking to kill Jesus and God thwarts it by taking Joseph and Mary to, to Egypt. And then he tries to disqualify Jesus and tempts him to sin, but God thwarts it because Jesus is filled with the word of God and he answers every temptation with the truth of the gospel. And then he thinks he's finally succeeded and he kills Jesus and God thwarts it by raising him from the dead on the third day. Church, God is sovereign. And no tower that is built against him or against us, his people, is ever going to succeed. Not one. We find ourselves in a 
time of pandemics and political parties and church, those are all the least of our concerns. We have to recognize that our culture is changing and it's becoming less friendly to the cause of Christ. But in all of that pressure, we can receive our comfort and encouragement. This week, I was uh, in my quiet time and one of my Old Testament readings on Wednesday just really just it delighted my heart to see this little way that God is gracious even to your pastor through his own personal worship, feeding his soul, showing him the truth of the Tower of Babel and what goes on here. I want to close out with these verses, and I hope they'll encourage you. The psalmist David writes, God, listen to me, hear my prayer. For wherever I am, though far away at the ends of the earth, I will cry to you for help. When my heart is faint and overwhelmed, lead me to the mighty, towering rock of safety. For you are my refuge, a high tower where my enemies can never reach me. I shall live forever in your tabernacle. Oh, to be safe beneath the shelter of your wings. Lord Jesus, may you give us each that comfort this morning. We're all across the continuum of spirituality this morning in this church. Some are here who don't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. They have maybe religious people, but their religion is self-made. Would you open their eyes to the paganism that has gripped their heart? But Father, your own people, we are so quick to run back to that predisposition of our souls, to create you in our own image, to, to serve you the way we think you want to be served rather than the way you tell us that you want to be served. We worship you according to our own ideas and disregard what you actually tell us. God, give us eyes that can see the paganism in our own heart. Let us see when our motivations are not fueled by the gospel, but are simply little ziggurats that need to be torn down. Give us the grace that we need, Lord Jesus, so that we may worship you and serve you and love you with pure hearts the way you love and serve us. In your name we pray, amen.